uh, we're picking up this morning. Uh, we're going through our series uh, through Matthew's Gospel. And we pick it up in chapter 11, where more recently Jesus and his disciples have been proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven for some time now. And with that proclamation, there's been the healing of the sick, many, and many liberated from unclean spirits. The kingdom of God is at hand, is both the message and uh, the whole event of what's taking place. And the response to that, both to the preaching and all the events, has been anything from inquisitive interest to indifference, from welcome reception uh, to outright rejection of who Jesus is and what he's about, and everything in between. We've seen faith unlike anything Jesus has seen in all Israel in a Roman centurion. We've had a woman who believed if just touching his cloak would bring healing to her. And then there are others who have accused him of being a blasphemer, of actually being in cahoots with Beelzebul, the prince of demons himself. And this morning, at the beginning of the passage before us, we hear of John the Baptist. He's one of the inquisitive ones, at least at the moment. He's inquiring as to whether Jesus really is the one, or is there still one to come? He knows we're expecting someone. Is Jesus him, or is there someone still to come? And at the end of the passage, we have those who are rather indifferent, almost bland indifference at the coming of Jesus that he describes from the generation of his day. But that indifference eventually turns to accusation and opposition. We played the flute for you, Jesus says, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. I remember being at a wedding once, it was an outdoor event, um, and I was chatting with Grant, actually, who was there, and before the bride arrived, we were waiting around outside. At some point, some music started. There was a, a lone musician. Um, she had a guitar there, sitting on a stool and singing, and had a little uh, foot thing where she could make a little bass drum for herself um, as she strummed away on a guitar and sang some pre-wedding music. And the moment it started, Grant sort of looked at me and said, you can't but move with the music, can you? You sort of feel it internally. And I said, yeah, I guess it's just part of my nature. He just noticed me sort of grooving on the inside, um, <laughs> as you do. And I'm sure many of us are a bit the same. Once a beat starts up, you sort of just naturally get into it, don't you? Uh, when I was teaching music, uh, there was one student I recall, I think he played the clarinet, um, and as we do at the end of each term, they had to do a solo performance, the whole class performing in front of each other. It's rather daunting. Um, he was a bit of a struggler, but he was doing okay. And at the end of his performance, we'd have a bit of a chat so the whole class could learn a little bit with a bit of a debrief and some comments. And uh, he was tapping his foot, staying in time while he was playing, and we sort of asked him, yeah, your foot tapping, it was rather loud. Um, can you explain that a little bit? He wasn't just sort of tapping his toes, he was sort of thumping his, his big foot. And he said, well, it helps me stay in time. And maybe trying to justify the volume of it, he said, well, and I thought some percussion might be good uh, for this piece. <laughs> oh, okay, fair enough, he's off the mark, that's okay. Um, but then we asked him at the end of it, I said, well, near the end there, you sort of slowed down in that last section, and there's nothing in the music, it didn't seem right with the piece. And he sort of thought about it, he said, yeah, my foot was getting tired. <laughs> <laughs> at least he was trying to feel the music and get the beat. But some of the people in Jesus' generation, they don't even get that. They don't even get tired feet tapping away to the song of the kingdom as it sounds around them. They're completely indifferent to it. Tone deaf. 
They refuse to tap the foot, their feet, to the beat of God's drum. And it's not because they're hard of hearing, it's because they're hard of heart. It's not because they've got no sense of rhythm, it's because they don't want to dance to the beat of the kingdom of heaven. They want to dance to the beat of their own drum. They don't want someone else to be the bandmaster for their tune. They will not rejoice when the bridegroom is with them. We've heard that already. And they won't mourn when he's gone. Like children in the playground, they refuse to join in with the others, having all the fun. We played the flute for you. You did not dance. You didn't even tap your foot. We sang a dirge. We tried to change the... And you still, you couldn't lament with us either. They were completely ignoring Jesus and the coming of the kingdom, indifferent to it, maybe not just indifferent, but indignant, determined. Rather than tapping their feet, they were digging their heels in. And we find later very much that they were not just indifferent, they were opposed to Jesus, offended by him and violently opposed. And those final words in our passage this morning really lead into what we'll hear next week as Jesus starts to denounce those cities who have heard his tune, they've heard the music coming, they've seen the most of his mighty works, and yet they refuse to repent. It'll be better for, for them, sorry, it'll be better on the day of judgment for Sodom than it will be for those cities. That's a stark warning, isn't it? Don't ignore the tune of the kingdom of heaven. The symphony, really. But what of John? John the Baptist. Sneha was telling us about her posh titles. Jesus calls John the Baptist. No one among women, born of women, has arisen that is greater than him. That's a pretty good reference to have to put on your CV, isn't it? <laughs> Signed by Jesus. <laughs> I'm the greatest man ever to have lived. That's what Jesus says of John the Baptist. Wow. John was there. He baptised Jesus. But he's since been arrested. He's been put into prison. We've heard of that back in Matthew 4. And that event actually seemed to be the catalyst for Jesus to begin his ministry. But whilst he's been in prison, John's been hearing all about what Jesus has done. He's heard the news. He sent disciples to, to find out. And here he sent some more to inquire of Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? This is John. John the Baptist, we've heard about him from before he was born. Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. He's the greatest man ever to live. And here he is asking this question of Jesus. John the Baptist, who was there, baptised Jesus, saw him anointed with the Spirit, bore witness saying he saw the Spirit descend, heard the voice of God, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the one who God himself told, John testifies, he who on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptises with the Holy Spirit. Jesus would have grown up knowing from his parents the prophecies about him and about the one to come. He knew he was going to be the trailblazer. As his father, Zacharias, sang, he would be called the prophet of the Most High, given the task to go and prepare the way of the Lord. And so with all that background knowledge and all that time with Jesus and the water and the baptism, Surely John would know that he's the Christ. Surely. And yet he raises this question. 
he has some doubt. Are you really the one? Or is there still one to come? Am I the forerunner of the forerunner before the real? (laughs) There must be something causing John the Baptist to have that question, to have that doubt. And I think if we're honest, dare I say that many of us have doubts. We have questions about God, about Jesus, about faith, about God's word. Maybe had a lot of them before we actually came to know Christ and receive the grace of God. Gripped by that. And maybe we've still got questions. One of the things I've always wanted and hoped for our youth, as I share with them, is that we would create for them a culture and environment and just a relationship together where they would feel confident enough to ask their questions. And we could look to the word together and look for the answers. But even as Christians, we sometimes have questions and doubts and we might start to wobble a little. And that's actually okay. This is John the Baptist, the greatest man ever to live, according to Jesus, and he's got a question. But who does he go to for the answer? That's what matters. He goes to the Son of God, and we can go to the Word of God, where he speaks to us. Asking questions is how we learn, it's how we grow, how God teaches us and gives us the assurance we need as we look to his promises and believe. Are you the one? It's not quite the same as a young girl met the man of her dreams as she is he the one it's not quite like that is it but he is asking jesus are you really the one we've been waiting for he knew his scriptures he knew jesus was indeed a man from god and more given his experience with him in his baptism but something caused him to raise this question and have some doubt something has made him want to seek some clarification from jesus some assurance is our wait finally over Or should we expect someone else to come after you? And for John himself, that would have sort of put a question as to his own role. If he knew, and I think he did, that he was the prophet of the Most High, come to prepare the way of the Lord. If you're not the one, then I've still got some work to do. What was it that gave John reason for this question and doubt? I actually think Jesus' response to John gives us some of the answer we need, gives us a clue as to why John was asking the question. Let's have a look at Jesus' answer. He doesn't simply say in verse 4, I'm the one. Doesn't give him a straightforward answer, does he? If anything, it could be a little bit cryptic, uh, Jesus' answer. He says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Why couldn't he just say, yes, I'm the one? Well, I actually wonder if to John and to Matthew's readers, and perhaps to some of us, Jesus' response here is not all that cryptic after all. John is being told that these diseases and afflictions and even death itself are subject to Jesus. Not just raw power, we've heard in the last few weeks, this is a man who's come with compassion for the weak, the lonely and the lost. Sheep without a shepherd. And it's the poor, Jesus highlights, as having the good news preached to them. And these words that Jesus answers the question of John through his disciples, the words he uses and the events he's describing here, hark back. They would take John the Baptist back. They're almost direct quotes from that passage we heard from Isaiah 35. 
And as we heard that passage, I'm sure some of you might have even started driving in your own seats. You know, the redeemed of the Lord shall return. You know, the chorus and come with sing. You'd start to do it, wouldn't you? Almost a bit like ba ba do ba ba. Just another generation before. But that chorus that we've often sung in our past, maybe, comes straight from Isaiah 35, from verse 10. The ransom of the Lord shall return. And they will come to Zion with singing, and everlasting joy shall be upon their hands. This, this is the news of the kingdom of God coming. Redeeming his people, rescuing, rescuing them. Later in Isaiah 61, no, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Just before that verse, from verse 5, we read Isaiah 35, verse 5, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. All that Jesus does is straight from here, isn't it? And it's not just that he's quoting. This stuff is happening as Jesus proclaims the kingdom. This is happening before. The, go tell John not just what I teach, but what you are seeing and hearing happening in the land. And later in Isaiah, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. A thousand years ago, these things have been prophesied and now they're being fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You go and tell John the Baptist that and see what he thinks. In other words, this is no cryptic response from Jesus at all. What Jesus replies here is basically the saying are the same as you bet I am. I am the one to come. Don't just take my word for it, though. Look around. See what's happening. You know your Old Testament. Put two, to get two and two together and you will get four. But if all that's happening, if all that is taking place, why doesn't John the Baptist already know that Jesus is the one? He's met him. He baptised him. He knew his Old Testament. He was putting two and two together, but he was still coming up with three or three and a half. Why? Well, I actually think it's because he knew his Old Testament, because he knew it really well, and he probably knew what Jesus was referring to in Isaiah 35 really well. And he's seeing the eyes, of, well, he's not seeing it, but he's hearing about the eyes of the blind being opened, the lame walking and the mute singing for joy. But he doesn't just know the good bits. <laughs> The chorus for Isaiah 35. He knows what happens before that. Isaiah 35 begins with this. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the chorus. Crocus. Sounds good so far. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. And the that sounds great, doesn't it? This great hope and this great promise. But what about as we read on? Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will see. Can you see John's conundrum? Where's the vengeance of God? Where's his recompense for his people? John's hearing about people are seeing the eyes, the blind can see, the lame are walking, people are being healed and demons are cast out. But where's the recompense? 
Where's this powerful God that's going to come and redeem his people Israel from the oppression? They're still under Roman rule. They're still under oppression. This passage in Isaiah was declared at a time when Judah, little old Judah in the south, was about to be attacked by Assyria. But they were protected by God. They trusted the Lord rather than man. Only to later be defeated by Babylon because they didn't trust the Lord and they looked to man to save them. Other nations. And so in the mix of here in Isaiah, there's judgment that's going to take place, yes, for the nations, but even for God's people because of their unbelief and their unfaithfulness, their idolatry. Faith in God would amount to blessing, but if you ignore God, reject his help and look to the nations, then that would not work out well. That would actually end in doom and disaster. And it did for Israel in the north and Judah in the south. But God in his covenant faithfulness, not for your sake, but for the sake of my holy name, he says, I will come and I will redeem you. And when that happens, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and they will come with singing unto Zion because I've made a promise to you and I'm going to fulfill it. And that is fulfilled not just for Israel, but for all the nations. But John hasn't seen or heard of that taking place in Jesus' ministry. Yes, the sicknesses and diseases, they're being defeated, even death. But Israel is still under Roman rule and oppression. Are you really the one, Jesus? Because it's not all working out quite the way I thought it would. It's not even working out how I thought I read the scriptures. Healing the sick, teaching good kingdom ethics, that's all great, but where's this full salvation we've heard about? Where's the vengeance and recompense? Where's the total defeat of our enemies? Where's the redemption of Israel? Remember, Jesus had gone to the cross. He'd been risen from the dead and he was about to leave them and the spirit would come. And what did his disciples say? Is this when you're going to bring about the redemption of Israel? They're still waiting for it. And so I think that's part of the reason why John's asking this question. I think we can understand some of John's doubts and his need for assurance. And it really is the same question so many of us are faced with today, and I think the world is faced with today, or should be faced with. Is Jesus the one? Is he really who he said he is? The answer to that question, really simple question, but it's life-changing, isn't it? You can be indifferent to it, not sing, not dance, not lament, or you can rejoice and receive the good news. The thing is, it's not about how we answer it. It's about whether it's true. And how we answer it doesn't change what is true. He is the one who has come, the Son of God. C.S. Lewis, in the middle of last century, he addressed the same question. What's known as the great trilemma. Not a dilemma, because there's three possible answers. Trilemma. Lewis suggests Jesus was either a, a, a liar, a lunatic, don't try to say those two things together, a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He was arguing against the notion, some were saying, yeah, Jesus was a great teacher, we can't deny that, a great prophet, a great teacher, but no, he's not God. And so in response to that question, C.S. Lewis said, if that was the case, 
If Jesus was a great teacher, you can, okay, you acknowledge he's a great teacher, <clears throat> but not God. How can such a great teacher make the claims he made if he's not actually what he claimed to be? Jesus either has no idea what, that, what he's saying when he says, I'm the one to come, the Son of God, the Son of the Father, I'm the way to the Father. He either doesn't know what he's claiming, making him a lunatic, or he does know what he's claiming and it's a lie, making him a liar. And you can't be that and still be a great teacher. You wouldn't, have a, you wouldn't call a madman a great teacher, would you? You might have had a mad physics teacher, I don't know. <laughs> mad scientist, but not in the way that you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about and not a great teacher who lies through his teeth. No, you'd be a fool to uphold Jesus as a great teacher if he was a liar or a lunatic. And so the only logical, using apologetics, response is, well, he has to be who he says he is. He's the Lord. And if we choose to ignore him, if we're indifferent to that, if we don't dance to the flute or the mourning and the dirge, then we do that at our own peril. If he is Lord and we oppose him, then again we do so at our own peril. How did our passage finish? Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Time will tell, and we will see the truth. They say these days you've got to be on the right side of history. It's a little bit about what Jesus is saying there. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Luke has it, wisdom is justified by her children. The truth will be revealed. Jesus closes his response to John the Baptist, verse 6. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Not indifferent. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That word offended uses the Greek verb scandalizo. That's where we get the word scandal from. Blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. It's the same word Paul uses, causing a brother or sister to stumble or to fall. He's the stumbling stone of offence, isn't he? It's what the gospel is. The preaching of Christ crucified is to Jews a stumbling block. It's an offence. It's a scandal that a man who would be cursed on a tree would actually be their salvation. The blessing of God. Jesus is saying, blessed is the one who does not stumble over me, but receives me for who I am. In other words, we've been hearing similar things the past few weeks. Whoever acknowledges me, I will acknowledge before my Father. Receive me, and you will not lose your reward. Take up your cross and follow me, even to death, because that's what taking up your cross involves. And you will not lose your life. You'll find it in me. See Jesus for who he is. Accept and believe he is who he claims to be, and you will indeed be blessed. Again, as we heard last week, there's no sitting on the fence here, is there? There can be no indifference in the end. You either accept Jesus' teaching and his claims and the gospel he brings, or you don't. And if you don't, it's because what he teaches and what he claims and who he is and all that he does is offensive to you. It's a scandal, as it is so much in the world today. 
You see it, don't you? You hear it and you talk to others, you listen to the news. As we personally, or maybe the church corporately, seek to uphold the teachings of Jesus and his kingdom ethics in life, whether it's regarding marriage or gender or justice or salvation. Blessed is he who is the one who is not offended by me. It's really easy to offend people today, isn't it? Really, really easy. Just have a different opinion, a different belief, especially as a Christian, and you will offend somebody. And that's one of the greatest social sins of our day, isn't it? <laughs> to offend someone. Especially if it's with your Christian ethics, with a biblical view of life and relationship, well, then you're called a bigot, you're a fundamentalist, you're a misogynist, you're sexist, you're a prude, and you should just shut up. Leave your religion to yourself. Except when it's not us, but the word of God we're proclaiming, and we're doing it in the manner of Christ, in a Christ-like way, they're not offended by us, ultimately, are they? They're offended by God. They're offended by Christ himself. He is the stumbling block. They're scandalised that someone would dare to say, I am Lord, and this is how we should live. I am Lord, and I know the best way for you to enjoy life and have life to the full and eternal. That's a scandal to people today because they don't believe Jesus is the one to come. The one who has come. It's not just because our science and technology and we, you know, we know better now, we've progressed so much intellectually. We know this stuff's just, you know, it's old hat now, it's old fashioned, it's narrow. None of this stuff. No, it's not that. They're scandalised by the fact that Jesus is Lord. That God reigns. You see, one of the things Jesus says here is the poor have had good news preached to them. And we hear that word good news all the time, don't we? We know it's the word for gospel. We know the gospel is the good news. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we had to sum that up, we'd probably say, well, Jesus died for our sins and I can be forgiven and have eternal. And that is the gospel. That's at least part of it. But Jesus has been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom since Matthew 4. And way back in Isaiah, well before Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins, Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You see, that term gospel, it's not just good news about Jesus Christ. It's actually a very deliberate term used by Jesus and the scripture writers. Good news, the gospel is the announcement that something has happened. An event has taken place which is significant, not just significant, it is life-changing. It changes history. It's transforming. When Caesar Augustus, Caesar Octavian Augustus became emperor of Rome, a decree went out to the land. And it said, this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Caesar Augustus. It was a new event. There was a new king. There was a new person on the throne. And this is going to change history. This is going to change the way of life for this kingdom. And so when you open up Mark's gospel, if you know that about Caesar, you open up Mark's gospel and how does that begin? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Wow, that's got a whole lot more meaning now, hasn't it? There's a new king on the throne. 
there's an event that's taken place and you need to hear about it because it has changed everything. God's kingdom has come here on earth. Which tune are we going to sing to? Which tune are we going to dance to? Your own little kingdom or the one, the gospel, the good news which, is to take, which has come in Jesus Christ? That's what's being proclaimed to the poor. Back in Isaiah, what is the good news? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? What's the, what's the uh, theme? What's the content of that good news? Our God reigns. That's the good news of the kingdom. Our God is sovereign and he reigns over every aspect of our life. Over every nation. Your life and mine and all the world. God reigns. That's why the poor have heard it preached. Because they know they need saving. They know they need someone to come and shepherd them and rule over them with love and authority and mercy. And it's why so much of the world, especially middle class world, don't hear it or don't want to hear it. Because they're not poor in spirit. They're proud. They don't think they need saving. They've got their own little kingdom, thank you very much, and I'm doing okay. It's why we stumble and are scandalised by the thought that one would come and say, I am your God. And reveal all our other gods, our idols. The kingdom belongs to those who are poor in spirit. It's the little children to whom the kingdom of God belongs. One's like them. And until we recognise that that's us, weak, vulnerable, in need of help, in need of a saviour, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, then our gospel will actually be weak, won't it? At best, and it'll be false and powerless and destructive at its worst. We're all beggars in need of our next meal, our daily bread. Do we look to our God who reigns for that? Or do we try to trust ourselves? He gives it to us, doesn't he? And so much more. And if you want to offend somebody, try this. John the Baptist, he's the greatest of all. And yet, the least in the kingdom, the poorest, the weakest, the most vulnerable, not the self-made man or woman, not the richest, not the one who's got it all together. No, the least, the poorest, the one who crawls into church, the greatest moral failure. Hesitant even to walk in the door of a church, but crying out in their heart, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. They're greater in the kingdom than the greatest man who's ever lived. That turns our world upside down, doesn't it? That will offend you. Because the weakest, the poorest, the one with the most empty hands, naked, full of shame, but poor in spirit. 
becomes rich in Christ Jesus. Rich in life, rich with joy, because there's a king who reigns, there's one who comes and saves and has provided all we need and most of all the forgiveness of our sins. That we would then belong to this kingdom and know the king, judge, lord of the earth as our father. He who has ears to hear, Jesus says, let him hear. I think John was right to ask the question. I see this stuff happening, but where's this recompense? Where's this vengeance? Well, it's still to come, isn't it? Because it would actually come on the cross. Whereas the kingdom comes in the person of Jesus and the proclamation of the kingdom. Yes, wisdom Wisdom will be known. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. And that deed to take place is the one on the cross. Where that vengeance of God, the recompense for the sinful people of God, the payment would be paid for in full. Poured out in him on the tree. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. That's good news. That's an event that, see, that's the thing about good news. It's not something you have to do or we have to do. It's what's been done. It's what's happened. And you hear it and you receive it and you believe it. And you become rich. And you're given an eternal hope of glory. Riches more than you could ever imagine. Friends, Jesus Christ is the one. And we, whatever your bank balance, we are the poor. And we've heard the good news, revolutionary good news. It's been preached to us. Promise of forgiveness, redemption, eternal hope in Christ. Blessed is the one who is not offended by Jesus. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, what mercy, what grace and love, what faithfulness we see of you in your son all your promises of old John would have known them well waiting and longing to see them fulfilled and questioning why some were and some weren't but Father we can look back with the gift of hindsight but mostly with the gift of faith to see all your promises a yes and amen in Jesus and so Father help us not to be indifferent to the great symphony of your grace but to be those the redeemed and the restored that come with singing as we hear this good news and receive it with joy knowing that our God reigns he reigns in your son by your spirit in our own lives and he's come to judge the living and the dead and he'll come again 
And on that day, Father, there will be no one indifferent. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so, Father, may we hear this good news today and every day with ears of faith. And may those, Father, our loved ones who don't yet know you, who refuse to hear this tune, Father, we pray it would be an earworm in their ears. That you would not relent to follow them with your goodness and mercy until they turn and see that you're pursuing them in love and receive that love and grace in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.